From ESPN Films and ESPN Audio, you're listening to 30 for 30 Plus, presented by the Mini Countrymen. My name is Jody Avergan. This is our series of bonus conversations in between seasons, conversations between me and filmmakers about some recent 30 for 30 films. We're going to be bringing you five of these conversations in the run-up to our next season of Original Documentaries, which launches on November 14th. This week on 30 for 30 Plus, the story of the largest single-day mass arrest in the history of the U.S. Marshals. It's a sting that took place in 1985 in Washington, D.C., and was fueled by an elaborate and very clever bait-and-switch. The U.S. Marshals disguised themselves as a new sports network, gave away free tickets to an NFL game, and nabbed over 100 fugitives when they showed up to collect. When you're reading about it, it just felt like there's no way it was true. This is Charlie Ebersol. He co-produced the new ESPN 30 for 30 short film called Strike Team with his brother Willie after reading an anecdote about the sting a couple years ago. That sting was called Operation Flagship. That number of criminals, that number of people that are on any level considered dangerous, being put into one room and corralled in a completely unknown environment, it just felt like it couldn't possibly be this big. It's a story of risk, reward, and trickery all captured on video at that time, giving Strike Team a feeling that it came straight out of the 1980s. Here's my conversation with Charlie and Willie Ebersol. It begins with Willie. This is the story of a cable network that launched in Washington, D.C. in the 1980s. Good afternoon, Flagship International. May I help you? Flagship International Sports Television. It was going to be a big deal. It was going to have all the sports, and they decided for their inaugural event to give away free Redskin tickets. I received a letter, so I want okay. two tickets. This is a publicity opportunity for the new cable television sports channel. You won two tickets to the Redskins game. Beautiful, beautiful. And invite people to come and collect the free tickets, and maybe even win season tickets, Super Bowl tickets, who knows. They have cheerleaders giving hugs. They have a guy in a chicken suit. It's the biggest party ever, and they bring people up the stairs. They close the doors, and they say, we have a huge surprise for you. Everybody's under arrest. Put your hands on your head. It was actually the greatest thing in U.S. martial history. You know, the cheerleaders giving hugs or giving pat-downs. The guy in a chicken suit had a gun under his wing. And everyone there was a U.S. marshal. There were over 100 people, and it was a huge success. So we'll get to the way you guys told this story, yeah. but the story itself. I guess the big question I have is how much was there an element of like this is the best way to execute a plan to nab a bunch of criminals at once and how much was there an element of this would be really fun and cool to pull off among the law enforcement folks? Well, see, the thing is that it actually comes from this long tradition – not long, but they've been doing it for several years, this program called FIST, which is, by the way, the greatest name ever. In 1981, the U.S. Marshals founded Fugitive Investigative Strike Team, also known as FIST, to combat the nation's growing number of fugitives. U.S. Marshals nationwide declare war on the country's criminals. U.S. Marshals rounding up the ones who get away. They would go into a community and they would use scams like this to safely apprehend criminals because a huge issue, especially in the 80s, but still today, is it's very, very dangerous to go to a home and make an arrest because it's just – it's there's a lot of unknowns. And they started to realize that the best way around it would be to 
find a way to get closer through basically social engineering. So they did stuff where they were, you know, UPS guys, basically. You know, they had brown shorts, brown shirts. And they'd walk up and they'd be like, we have a package. We have to sign for it. So people come out and sign for it and they'd arrest them. And then they did uh, another great one they called El Puno Airlines, which was um, they gave people away free airline tickets and people would come to the airport. And then they basically, as they're going to their gate, take them aside and arrest them. Of course, El Puno means fist in Spanish. And, you know, they had a sense of humor about it, but it was really a great and safe way to arrest people that allowed them to also get publicity for the marshals because the marshals at the time was one of the least funded branches of the, you know, U.S. government despite being the oldest, you know, federal police enforcement in the country. We were always feeling the pressure of money and looking for ways to arrest the fugitives without having the funding available. Unfortunately, it puts our men and women at great risk. U.S. Marshals, open up! The work was dangerous. The marshals lost more agents than any other federal law enforcement agency. We've lost quite a few deputies in the line of duty, but it was all in fugitive investigations trying to make arrests. Federal marshals killed in the line of duty. Marshals came under fire. That was the beauty of the sting. It eliminates a lot of the risks. So when they started doing these stings, you know, the average cost of an arrest was somewhere in the range of $2,000 where it would be you have to stake them out, last known address, all that kind of stuff. So if you could find a way to cheaply do it without all the work. Have them come to you. Yeah, exactly. Have them come to you. That was the big thing. So you could send letters and then get responses and have them call you. You could save a ton of money. And so by the time they got to Operation Flagship, they were at $100 an arrest, which is just unbelievable, you know, to think about the the sheer swing in, in finances. The thing that I think, to your point about it, was it just fun or not, was... These guys are hyper serious to the point of it's like where humor goes to die when they're planning. And so I think they just sort of worked their way like, oh, God, it'd be so much better if we could get this number down to $100 per person as opposed to 2000 And then once they would do that, then they were like, you know what would be funny is if we, if we named the uh, person who sent the letter out, I am wanted. Or when you call, the hold music's going to be, uh, I fought the law and the law won. You gotta have fun. Every one of our things always has some tricks, and the guys love that. The letter was signed, I'm Michael Detnow, which was an acronym for I am wanted in reverse. They would start to layer in this humor and this, and, the, and frankly, in some cases, kind of dangerous telltales like, hey, by the way, you're about to get stung because they were like laughing at them. they that part i think was very much so wait, wait on that though did you get the sense that they ever sort of compromised the mission so to speak by trying to do something a little too clever by half see i actually don't think so because i think that yeah they were hiding fugitive investigative strike team in the name of things but i don't think people were sitting around going in the 80s going god that really does seem similar to fugitive investigative strike team especially because at the same time their program was not very well known You'd have to go pretty deep <laughs> to be able to reference. Yeah, I mean, they're human beings. They work together in an office all day. Like, they're going to have fun with each other. There's going to be in-jokes, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, at the same point, though, I think one of the most important things was that a lot of the fun they had was always in, for the betterment of the sting. We think it'd be amazing to have uh, a guy in a chicken suit there because it's kind of amazing and hilarious, but it's also a great way to have a U.S. Marshal who's armed, one of the few, one of maybe three people who were on the floor who were armed, who could get anywhere near the criminals. So if something broke out, this guy would be two feet from a criminal mm-hmm. as opposed to all the people who had shotguns in the barrels, you know, in their trash barrels who were, you know, on the periphery or in the other room waiting. It was decided that I would be down on the floor in this chicken suit. 
I'd be walking around taking people's minds off the underlying reason for them being here. Basically, I'm the clown in this operation. Where does a law enforcement official put his gun in this outfit? Uh, he hides it very carefully up under the shoulder in hopes that uh, he can get to it. It'll just rip right open and get to it if necessary. So, like, in a lot of ways, like, their jokes were helping to sell the lie. Only thing would be a total life and death situation. Until that point in time, I'm the chicken, and I play the chicken working for Flagship International. So to your point about how the, the kind of the structure of the sting has to do with the effectiveness of getting the criminal, that's where the sportsness of this comes in because it was about football tickets. But, I mean, how is this a sports story? You could only do it with sports. What they were looking to accomplish, you had to be able to get a huge group of people in mass to show up at something that they would put their entire guard down for. Who's number one? Redskins! Who won the Super Bowl? Redskins! The whole nation can now sing Hail to the Redskins. Particularly at that moment, if you were in Cleveland right now and you offered a thousand people tickets to go see the Cavs play in the NBA Finals, you could probably redo this sting exactly the same after people had seen the, the documentary that Willie just directed, and people would still show up to go to it because they're blinded by the fact that they want to see Braun and So there was something about the Washington football team at this moment that made it just the not, most attractive Not just the thing. team, but the actual games. It was a really big deal to go, and the tickets were highly sought after. Redskin tickets, that's the holy grail of Washington, D.C. I had never been to a Redskin game myself. I couldn't afford it. It seemed like it would attract a high number of people. It's a very real opportunity for the good guys basically to trick the bad guys. You know, back then, it's like you weren't accessing on your phones. You weren't watching it. You know, it's only on TV. You know, if you weren't local, you were only seeing your games, you know, if they're nationally televised. Like, they'd done concerts, like, the, uh, a year or two before, and they'd arrested a few people who had been thought they were going to the concert. And uh, it was like four or five people. It's like to find something that could so unilaterally appeal to such a large group. I mean, that's why it's the single biggest single-day sting in the history of the U.S. Marshals is because they did it with sports teams. Here we go, Here we go! Coming up after the break, Charlie and Willie Ebersol discuss how the Marshals' greatest sting was nearly sunk when a real cable network confronted their fake enterprise. Good afternoon, Flagship International. May I help you? I'm one of the lucky fellows that was invited to the brunch. Well, I'll tell you what, luck's not the word for it. We've got some very enthusiastic people about coming down to this game. What's this guy's claim to fame? Escape prisoners. Escapee. All right. One of our fugitives has a background of controlled substances, several robberies, and also narcotics violations. This is by far the most sophisticated scam we've ever tried. These have wanted fugitives, and they have failed to come in and face the music. One thing worth noting is the team didn't know about this. They weren't on board. They just, the marshals just kind of did this thing and used oh, not only the name. The team, not only did the football team not know, but one of the great stories is so they create this fake sports television network. And the sports television network is going to be competing with all the top networks, ESPN, etc. Well, not only that, but they have the the, the flagship international sports television has the exclusive rights to the Redskins and the Capitals and the uh, and the Bullets, which the U.S. Marshals just threw in the letter. So a month, a little less than a month before the Sting, they get a call on the flagship international, and they're like, "Who is this?" And the, and the boy, the woman says, "It's flagship international. Who's this?" 
and the person on the phone says, this is Comcast. And the general counsel for and, Comcast. And we're going to you know, sue you because you do not have the exclusive rights to the capitals. Uh, we do. And they sent a cease so and desist they letter. They sent a cease and desist. And so they actually had to go, the marshals had to go meet with them and sit down and say, we are completely fake. You're right, but it's not what you think. And it Amazing. was a huge deal because, you know, if, if if Comcast shows up to the event, anything like that, and shuts them down, it would clearly – people would be like, wait, this isn't a real network. That would or destroy Comcast this thing. goes public with that claim before making that direct call, yep. then it then – it To Comcast's credit, they then helped sell the lie. Yeah. I mean they, they then were totally, you know, on board and, 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 and laid back and didn't get involved. But, I mean, if you think about that, you're right. Today – Someone might be like on Instagram or Twitter to be like, that's not possible. There's someone else who has the rights. Yeah, they were able to kind of create this fiction and then control that narrative for weeks and months leading up to it in a way that I think today word would get out. People would start to like try and corroborate the evidence somehow. Well, that was one of their biggest fears is they were concerned that when people showed up in line – that they would recognize the yeah. other criminals and realize that everyone there they'd seen or several people there had seen in jail. And that's when they thought things would go bad. The the risk involved for the marshals can't be understated. Had it not worked, it would have decimated well, the marshals. And I think that's something that it's, it's hard to convey. When you run a sting operation, you always have a risk. There's always the unknown. Somebody can bring a weapon. Somebody can catch on that this is really a sting. And they could fight. We try to mitigate the risk. Gonna wrap chains around the inside doors and duct tape them. If they break, they're going to break towards the doors on the left. But there's always a risk when you put that many fugitives together that something's going to go wrong. Search Cover. Turn them over to the process team. Per arrest, it should be no more than a few seconds. It doesn't take a lot to set off an environment. You gotta get close to these guys to their arms. It takes one guy to have his spidey senses go off and loud out cops. And now you get all of these fugitives and their family members reacting. One mess up would have taken this agency back to the Stone Age. Our critics would have crucified us. What police force is going to put 150 bandits in and risk the gunfight? Everybody take your places. The game is on. So let's talk about, obviously, a key part of this story is that there is just all of this footage sitting there because they invited a TV well, show <laughs> to come in and film them. But they, did they do some of the filming themselves as well? No, they, did, no they did not. One of the things that's amazing is that this got a lot of national coverage uh, from all of the late night networks, but they were also had a crew embedded from West 57th, which was a, a news magazine show at the time for CBS. It was such a ahead-of-its-time kind of show that was doing, like, really deep-dive, hands-on um, coverage. It's funny now, looking at reality TV, how far ahead this was. West 57th was the 80s version of Vice. If 60 Minutes was for your dad, this was for you. And so we see this West 57th piece, and it's about 11 minutes long, and there's about six minutes of usable footage in there that I haven't seen before. So CBS sent us 26 tapes. And I said, God, that's amazing. But on the top of the paper, it said one of 75. And I said, well, where's the other, you know, 547 tapes? And they said, no, there's no, no, we don't have any more tapes. It's like, no, but it says one of 75. And so we called and said, can you please look in your archives? And they're in Jersey. And they're like, you know, fine, mm-hmm. we'll go look. And they said, oh, we actually have 73 tapes. I mean, they had such a a treasure trove of footage that all of a sudden our entire documentary came into focus because it became so much less about doing it a typical way and hearing people and seeing them all, you know, 30 years later and instead became about what if we lived in this moment? I think it's like a nice instructive moment about like in the creative process where you know that you have something – you know, the, the the weeks and weeks of finding these tapes and going out to Jersey and watching them all, like that was where 
you know, you actually knew what you had. So I don't know. I just think it's it's like instructive to re- to point out that like a lot of the work has to go in before you even know up or down or this is what the, it is. Every decision creatively was born out of that. And so when we found that footage, it was a godsend in a way. It's not nearly as an amazing story if it's done entirely through vintage still frames and talking heads because to us – you can't capture the insanity and the brilliance and the all-immersiveness and also the, the fact that it really worked if you can't see it. Being believable in your roles is going to get us through this thing. Sell them on the idea that this is flagship international sports television. We have several people who have a track record of carrying a piece. They don't have anything else? Not then Merry Christmas. We'll see you bright and early Sunday morning. When we originally went and pitched, we were like, we're big Miami Vice fans. We want to do like an homage to an 80s cop, you know, Hill Street Blues, Miami Vice, A-Team, that type of thing. And in doing so, we want the entire story to unfold in, you know, in the place with, in and have that music and flair and everything that was of the 80s. And it's a, it's a leap. The audience has to sort of be on board right from the get-go to sort of buy into it. And to ESPN's credit, they leaned in and let us do it. Well, my favorite section of the entire documentary comes in the middle of the second act, and it's after they've prepped everybody and given a speech and talked to the marshals, and you see them practicing the night before. Weapon drop, and that's it. We'll take it from there. Now, we really have a big surprise for everyone. I hope everybody's happy this morning, because you're all under arrest. Put your hands on your head and don't move. All right, back again one more time. Hands on your head when you hit your spot. It would have no place in a documentary that was told traditionally because you wouldn't have the footage and you would just be like, yeah, we practiced a lot and we were very nervous. And that would be the whole section. But because we have this footage, we can we can drop the interviews and just sit there as they're running through and, and, and Bill Deegan, um, you know, who's another U.S. Marshal who, who ran their special operations group is sitting there in the back room telling these guys, like, you know, shut up, listen, pay attention. You know, when this, you know, when they say surprise, you need to run out. And lo and behold, when the sting goes down and he says surprise, no one runs out right away. Nobody showed up. And I said, oh, shit. And I really got scared then. Well, have a yes, we got a big surprise for you. We got some additional tickets, so... uh just stand by. If they attack me, I'm at their mercy. On behalf of Flagship International, we really have a big surprise for you today. Everybody's under arrest. Don't move. Put your hands on your head. And that was something we could truly set up by having seen it. By having seen it the night before, trying to get the timing right and trying to hear him through the door and not knowing what the sound yeah. would be like and what the tension would be like. And that's just unbelievable to me. The one thing that I loved doing about this was getting to have some fun with it as well. And so, like, there's a huge element of it that we love to get to use, you know. We homage the A-Team voiceover. Yeah. We have a really fun title sequence. So, for me, it was like there was just nothing more fun than just getting to have, like, to try to capture the fun they had. Yeah. It's it's also something that they say so well at the end, which is uh, at the end of the doc, uh, Tom Spillane says, the marshals are a lot safer now, but they had a lot more fun back then. Yeah. And I mean, you just on some level like this couldn't have almost you almost couldn't do it today. It's such a perfect moment in time when sports and and creativity and law enforcement everything came together in such a perfect way. You know, yeah, for sure. And I think you from everything from the format to the music to the voiceover to the graphics, like it feels like you have slipped a VHS tape in or maybe a beta tape in, and you're just sitting there and watching it. All right, Willie, 
Charlie Ebersol, thank you so much for coming in. Congratulations on this film. It's really fun. Thanks. Thanks appreciate it. Appreciate it. Willie Ebersol is the director and producer of the new 30 for 30 short Strike Team. His brother, Charlie, is executive producer. You can find Strike Team in the ESPN app. We've also included a link to that in the show description. Just click and you can start watching right now. It's a really fun short film. And again, if you haven't listened to our podcast documentaries, you can hear them at 30for30podcast.com slash season one or click the link in the episode description. And remember, season two launches with our first episode on Tuesday, November 14th. My name is Jody Avergan. This episode was produced by Andrew Parsons with help from Ryan Nantel, Vin DeAnton, and Kate McCullough. We had additional production support from Aaron Lydon, Jenna Anthony, Jennifer Thorpe, Colin Fleming, Taylor Barfield, Tony Chow, and Alex Bowen. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week with more 30 for 30 Plus.